This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Friday, December the 9th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. It kind of feels like the last day of school over here, as it is indeed last broadcast from Studio 5 before Now with Dave Brown moves into a new studio on January the 9th of 2023. It's our last broadcast before a hiatus, which means we have to bring all the energy today. All the hot takes need to be released from our lungs and our vocal cords into your ears and eyes. News panel with Michelle McQuig and Joyda Gupta, except we are going to broaden the scope. We'll hash out some of the biggest stories of care system We'll reflect on the mass stabbing that took place in Saskatchewan, and we'll discuss the ongoing war in Ukraine. Now, that's just three topics. By my count, we have 11 in total to get through during the course of the news panel. Those are just a couple of the biggies, but we have lots for you in the news panel today with Michelle and Joita. And you heard me mention healthcare, so let's start there. That's our top story of the day. Canada's premiers will hold a press conference today to discuss the state of healthcare. Emily Javesky offers up some background. Admissions are surging under a triple threat of respiratory syncytial virus, influenza, and COVID-19. At a time when the healthcare system is grappling with record numbers of job vacancies. Pediatric hospitals across the country have been cancelling some surgeries and appointments as they redirect staff. In Ottawa, two teams of Canadian Red Cross personnel are working rotating overnight shifts at CHEO in support of its clinical care team. Members of the Alberta Medical Association have sent a letter to the province's acting chief medical officer of health, calling for stronger public health measures to prevent the spread of the illnesses. Emily Joveski, The Canadian Press. And let's pivot over to the UN Biodiversity Conference. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has further elaborated on his commitment to preserving biodiversity. Rob Westgate has that story. That includes protecting 25% of land and marine areas by 2025 and 30% by 2030. Now, to hit the first goal, Canada has just three years to protect a bigger area than the province of Ontario. And marine and coastal territory? Nearly three times the size of the Gulf of St. Lawrence. But what exactly does that mean? Well, Trudeau says that while industrial activities such as logging and mining might not be allowed in all protected areas... They don't need to be banned as long as the activities fit with local conservation plans. Rob Westgate, the Canadian Press. And one more news story for you. It's from the food news world. The Canadian Food Inspection Agency has issued a recall for a type of cheese sold in Ontario and Quebec. Emily Javesky shares the news that is far from Gouda. The agency is recalling Igor brand Gorgonzola mild ripened blue vein cheese due to possible listeria contamination. The affected product was sold in 350 gram packages with a best before date of February 1st, 2023. 
There have been no reports of any illnesses linked to the product. Food contaminated with listeria may not look or smell spoiled, but can still make you sick. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press. Except gorgonzola and blue cheese do look and smell spoiled, so it's a very dangerous game that you're walking there. But yes, indeed, there was a recall on some blue cheeses, and I apologize for the pun that I dropped on you. Let's get to the daily polls at Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook on Thursday. We asked you, how concerned are you about your devices tracking and surveying your activity and conversations? 64% of you said very, and 36% of you said somewhat, and 0% of you landed on the Dave Brown train, which was not at all. Today's daily poll, even though it's our last show of the year and we won't even be able to share these results with you until January the 9th due to our hiatus for some testing as was rightly pointed out to me by Daniel why are we even asking the question Ah, because we like having conversations but we always appreciate those Panama doses of reality even when they're coming behind the scenes so today's daily poll at Accessible Media on Twitter at Accessible Media Inc on Facebook when are you most productive morning midday evening or night today was one of those days Your boy went to bed early last night, 7 p.m. Eastern time, bedtime, got up at 2.30, 3 o'clock, was at the gym at 3.40, clanging and banging. I've already had three cups of coffee today, already eaten two meals, feeling good. I'll tell you, for a long time in my life, I was one of the evening slash night productive people, and then I got a job in radio that had me waking up at 3.15 in the morning every single day, and it shifted my ability to be productive in the dark hours. So I am now a morning productivity person with a little bit lingering into midday, but by the afternoon and the evening, there is nothing left in this brain or body. Let's bring in Alex Smythe. Alex, when are you most productive? Uh, so Dave, I think I, I would have uh, sided with your, uh, your previous version of yourself. I've, I've had to fill in for you as, as folks at home know for a little bit, I am not productive in the morning. I am not a morning person at all. So that one was, it was very rough getting up and being productive by like 6.30, you know, getting getting started on on uh, on work. So I'm, I'm more like the midday evening kind of guy. Like I can do night, I, I think I'm most creative at night, if that makes sense, but I'm most productive kind of late afternoon, early evening kind of thing. Like that's when I, I can get my, my focus in, you know. I've had my my lunch, my fill of caffeine for the day. I'm in a good groove. That's kind of where where my my uh, focus is at is at its greatest. But when it comes to creativity, definitely at night because there's a lot of times where I'll be like lying in bed and wake up at like two o'clock in the morning. And it's like, oh, I have this idea. I need to write it down before I forget it and then go back to sleep. At night, I also have some creativity, but it has more to do with what's coursing through my lungs than coursing through my brain. Let's bring in Eliza Rocco. Eliza, when are you most productive? Oh, oh, Eliza, your microphone may be a little unplugged there. Uh, Yes, no, Eliza? Oh, no, we may have lost Eliza. Grace Scofield was fighting with that microphone wire the entirety of her time uh, with us this week. So, Eliza, we may have to come back to you on that one while uh, you try to get that machine reassembled. Hey, it is it is our last day. It is our last day in Studio 5 in the audio control room after all. So wh- why not give us why not give us one last round? Eliza, it looks like you've put your engineering hat on and you fixed it. I think I did. You got it. My engineering hat is just me 
playing with the wire and seeing if it works. And it did. Yay. Um, I would say morning. Morning is most productive, but I'm no 3 a.m. in the morning productive or 6 a.m. It's like a 9 a.m. morning productiveness. 9 to 12. Great hours of productivity. Mm -hmm. I can get so much done. The afternoon's pretty good, midday, pretty good. However, when the sun goes down, when it starts to get dark, that's when I go down too. I, I, I have no brain in me at those times. I have no productivity. I can't, I'm useless after there's no light anymore. It's it's good that we steal two of your top hours of productivity to uh, sit in that room <laughs> instead of uh, instead of out tackling bigger projects. No, no, just uh, sit there and, and work for us, work for DB for a couple hours. Eliza, thank you for this one. That's Eliza Rocco. You'll hear from Eliza before the end of the show, just like you'll hear from Alex before the end of the show. At Accessible Media is where you vote on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you vote on Facebook. And yes, I know, we won't be at, won't be back to give you those results until January the 9th. However, however, I still want to hear your opinion. Just because we're on hiatus doesn't mean we're not here. We're going to be engaging and creating and testing. So please, feel free to remain engaged with us. Don't forget about us. Don't you... Forget about me. A don't, 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 don't. And do listen to Alex Smythe, who has the national weather updates. First off, Dave, thank you very much for now having that song stuck in my head. And I, I was trying to avoid it. As soon as you started saying those words, I'm like, oh, no, here it comes. A don't, but, uh, don't, don't, yeah, don't. No, uh, you're, don't you. Please, please don't you. Um, uh, so here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We'll start in St. John's, Newfoundland. There's light rain today throughout the day, and the high is 3 degrees. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, it's very similar. It's rain throughout the day as well, with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour, and it's slightly warmer with a high of 8 degrees. In Montreal, Quebec, it's sunny, a high of minus 1, but a wind chill that makes it feel like minus 10. In Ottawa, Ontario, it's mainly sunny as well. The high is also minus one. The wind chill slightly colder at minus 12. In Toronto, Ontario, it's mainly cloudy. The high is two degrees, but it'll feel more like minus six. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's cloudy with a chance of snow or possible freezing rain. The high is zero and the wind chill makes it feel like minus 17. Over to Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's very similar. It's cloudy with a chance of snow or freezing rain. There's also wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high is minus four with a wind chill of minus 20. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of snow. The high is minus four and it's gonna be feeling like minus 17. In Calgary, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds today. It's a minus two with a wind chill of minus 12. Up in Edmonton, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds as well. Slightly colder as the high is only minus 7 and the wind chill makes it feel like minus 16. Up in Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, where it's been frigid cold this last week, there's snow off and on today, but it is slightly warmer. The high is only minus 17 and a wind chill factor of minus 28. So today, no minus 40 degree temperatures they have to worry about up there. In Vancouver, BC, it's cloudy with a chance of rain today. Wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour in a high of five degrees. And then finally in Victoria, BC, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of rain and wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour 
the high is 5 degrees, but there is also a wind warning in effect for the evening with wind gusts up to 80 kilometers per hour. That's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, we have a weekly news panel with a totally different spin. We should call it the yearly news panel with Michelle and Joita because we'll be talking about some of the biggest stories of the year and how can you not talk about news stories in Canada without beginning the conversation around healthcare concerns. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. We're about to kick off our year in review news panel. Just before I welcome in Michelle and Joita, for the sake of transparency, I want to tell you that I've been fighting tooth and nail for two weeks not to have this show overly jammed up with year in review content as well as holiday content. Just because we go on hiatus as of 11 a.m. Eastern time today, I didn't want people to fall into that trap. But then this week, I fell into my own trap and I said, if it's the last day before our hiatus and it's the news panel with Michelle and Joita, we have to do a year in review because a whole lot has happened in 2022. So here I am breaking my own rules, struggling with myself. That's the life that I lead. So let's welcome in Michelle and Joita. Michelle McQuig, how are you? I'm fine, Dave. How are you? I'm well. And Joita Gupta, how are you? Good. Thank you. So let's get into this. There is a whole lot of subjects to reflect on, but let's begin with healthcare because healthcare has been front and center throughout the year. The Omicron wave of the pandemic strained the system early in the year. The overall robustness of healthcare was put into question during funding fights between the feds and the provinces. And now with the flu and COVID and RSV, health professionals are once again sounding the alarm about the system's fragile state. Michelle, what's your takeaway from this year in healthcare? My takeaway from this year in healthcare is that we're starting to finally reckon with some of the questions that COVID started to raise. This feels to me like an inevitable sort of next chapter in that conversation. Um, COVID itself placed unprecedented strain on the healthcare system that was already buckling under a lot of pressure. We're now seeing those chickens come home to roost, I think. And uh, the conversations that are happening now, unfortunately, are having are taking place against a backdrop that's really scary for a lot of people. Yeah, I think we've reached, my takeaway this year is that we've reached the noodles at the wall phase. And as we all know, not all noodles are homemade rigatoni. We have some provinces talking about opening new uh, new med schools. That's British Columbia with Simon Fraser University. Saskatchewan, they're bringing in 1,500 nurses from the Philippines to try and bridge some of their gaps. Ontario is putting a lot of extra pressure on pharmacists. I'll have that news story about Paxlovid a little bit later in the show, being given the authority to pharmacists to offer up those prescriptions. Newfoundland and Labrador moving towards tele health. Everybody's throwing their own noodles at the wall. Some of these solutions are good. Some of these solutions are bad, but it feels like we've hit the let's actually try some solutions phase of the conversation. Joita, what's your takeaway from this year in healthcare? I think um, it's really, it really demonstrates a couple of things. One, I don't think anyone really anticipated that the pandemic would last as long as it has. Uh, Omicron was quite severe, but it has certainly hasn't been the end of the road. We're still dealing with rising rates of COVID infection, and now you've got the flu and the RSV. 
thrown into the mix. You've got these three different things swirling around. And I think it's put a lot of pressure on the healthcare system because of COVID fatigue and mask fatigue, where perhaps the infection rates around COVID would not have been as high as they are right now because we've seen a number of jurisdictions and in fact, you know, everywhere across Canada, we've seen these mask mandates being relaxed all across the board. So I think what we see with the healthcare system, and I, I forgive me for stating the obvious, is that it is a system in crisis. But I think where things have gotten really more complicated is that in 2020, towards the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot more unanimity between the provinces mm-hmm. and the federal government in trying to be on the same page. And I feel a deep sense of regret that that has now broken down. If you remember the minister's meeting, yep. I think we talked about it a few weeks ago, people are just not being able to be at the table together to find solutions. I really feel that we would be remiss, though, in saying that these problems are entirely brought about due to the pandemic. We have to step back, especially for those of us who've worked in the news media and covered stories about long wait times and uh, you know healthcare shortages in, in up north, for example. These are problems that have in large part predated the pandemic. Back to borrow Michelle's phrase, the chickens have now come home to roost because the system had no wiggle room and no way to really uh, anticipate or accommodate a sustained healthcare crisis. The other thing that I've been thinking a lot about in terms of solutions is we often talk about funding, who should fund whom and how much. And I think those are important conversations. But partway through the year, I had a really exciting opportunity to work on a story about teams-based care where you would bring in health professionals from different um, backgrounds. You could have social workers, you could have occupational therapists, you could have doctors working in a hub model to try and provide a primary care in a more holistic way. So I've also sort of turned my mind towards whether there are solutions that are possible that don't involve spending money because there seems to be endless quarreling about who spends how much on healthcare. Strategy is not always built around finance. There's no doubt about that one. Like I said, we're blowing through this stuff quick, guys. So that's it. We're closing the book on healthcare. That said, one of the tentacles of the pandemic was the freedom protests in Ottawa and several border crossings early in the year. After several weeks, the federal government introduced the Emergencies Act to give law enforcement more powers, including the power to freeze financial assets of suspected protesters and supporters. The protests ended. But the act remained top of mind over the last few months. A mandated public inquiry looked into the lead up and the use of the legislation. Michelle, as the dust has settled, what's your reflection on the protests and the Emergencies Act? That's just, that's just it. I'm not entirely sure the dust has settled, to be honest. This, to, to me, if I had been asked to vote in my own newsroom's poll for news story of the year, this would have been the one for me. Uh, the, the, the Freedom Convoy protests, the anger they tapped into the disruption they caused, the inquiry they triggered, the questions that now linger. This is not something that's going to go away. This particular force, though the ones behind the Freedom Convoys, felt very, very mobilized and, and and emboldened by this. And now having a lot of COVID measures relaxing, even though many of them were not were, were done totally independent of this convoy, I think a number of them feel a sense of victory. And now they're hoping to extend that victory and that sense of of having a voice into the political realm. And I think they made strides on that front. Uh, We now have a head of the official opposition who was extremely friendly and receptive to this group of people and and what they represent and the the positions that they espouse. Um, This was a rare kind of crazy moment in Canada when we saw people who were actively calling for the overthrow of the government at the door of Parliament Hill. Really unprecedented times. Uh, definitely the hardest story I've ever been involved in as a journalist to cover. So on a personal note, that really struck home for me. But it's about a whole lot more than that. It's about, to me, uh, of some some rifts that are 
becoming more and more visible in Canadian society. And I don't think we're done with this one just yet. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, what uh, Paul Rouleau has to uh, say in terms of his final reports, because I thought the inquiry focused a little bit too much on sort of the experience in Ottawa rather than what was going on at the political level. I thought that was the purpose of the inquiry. So I actually thought they missed the mark a little bit, at least in terms of the testimony. Oh, interesting. I know there was, I know there was a lot of text exchanges. I know there was a lot of emails that were examined as evidence, but I really felt like there was too much of like, it was a tough time in Ottawa and police were overwhelmed. Yeah. We figured that out in three days, guys. We watched that. We had cameras. Let's get the politicians on the stand. I thought it was really lacking some of the political accountability in real time. So I'm really interested to see what Paul Rouleau has to say in his final report. Joita, I like that Michelle quibbled with my idea that the dust has settled. So as the dust is settling, what's your reflection <laughs> on the protests and the emergencies act? I don't think the dust has settled. It's far from settled. As you noted, Paul Rouleau is to still hand down his uh, verdict on the uh, whether the uh, inquiry, uh, on the basis of the inquiry, whether the uh, Emergencies Act was used appropriately. And one can't help but think back to uh, the War Measures Act, which at the time had been very popular because there was a crisis, there was a sense that something had to be done about it immediately. Again, that should sound very familiar to those of us who've covered the um, the convoy protest. Life in Ottawa was brought to a standstill. People were really struggling. And at the time, um, the government brought in the Emergencies Act, and I don't think the government has really lost ground because they did. If you look at the polling, the Liberals are still doing quite well in the polls. So no one's really taken them to task in the court of public opinion about bringing in the Emergencies Act. But of course, during the inquiry, you start to hear these really interesting things from uh, the governor of Quebec, Canada and from Christian Freelance saying, we were concerned about economic factors and uh, Canada's reputation on the world stage. And suddenly you start to scratch your head and go, but were we just talking about a national security question or was there something else going on? So I think it's going to be very interesting to see what the final verdict is on the use of the Emergencies Act and whether history will judge the Liberals a little hard. Because, you know, in, 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 in retrospect, we look at the, uh, the Emergencies Act People have gone on to say in the decades since that maybe it was a bit of an overreaction. So I don't think the story is going away anytime soon. Certainly it'll be one that we'll be watching in 2023, if not beyond that, mm. because the way that people are reacting to it now may be very different from how people are reacting to it down the road, five, 10 years down the road. That's well put. The War Measures Act to this day remains an academic fascination for a lot of people studying political policy. It's been a busy year elsewhere in federal politics. Here's a few highlights for you. The federal liberals and NDP struck a deal to keep the government in power until 2025. The conservatives ousted Erdo O'Toole and chose Pierre Poilievre as their new leader, as Michelle identified. The Green Party brought back Elizabeth May. That's just the view from 10,000 feet above. There's also been developments in childcare. I mean, that happened as, as recently as yesterday. Dental care, affordability, and all kinds of other policy. Joita, what's your big thought on federal politics this year? I'm going to preface this by saying I could be wrong. So with that said, I don't anticipate a great deal of instability moving into 2023 based on everything that you just said. I think uh, the agreement between the Liberals and the NDP is a solid one. I don't think the NDP will necessarily want to back, back off from it if they can manage to uh, push through some of their policy platforms like the dental care and pharma care and child care. Those are things that the NDP has traditionally uh, really um, you know, fought for. And if you think about the Green Party, it's really interesting after the fiasco with 
anime poll to see that Elizabeth May, who said, oh, no, 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 I'm done. I'm never coming back. It's very interesting to see that she's come back. And really, the Greens are doing quite badly in the polls. They lost a lot of ground. And it would be interesting to see with Elizabeth May back at the helm, whether they're able to gain some of that ground back. Pierre Polyev is very interesting to watch because he um, is something of a populist figure. Michelle noted correctly that he has been quite sympathetic to the convoy protest. And yet, I don't know if he's necessarily going to be a leader who could translate support from the base, that you know, the for the Tories to being someone who would be who would necessarily be considered prime ministerial. So again, I don't anticipate any big upheavals or upsets based on how uh, things have lined up on the chessboard, uh, based in you know looking at federal politics. But you know, famous last words, I could be wrong. So I mean, you know, I'm I'm I'm, I'm assuming 2023 will see more of the same, but. You never know with politics, right? Yeah, my biggest thought on federal politics is Pierre Polyev. He certainly has carved out some ground for himself. He knows how to put himself into the winning eyes of his base, at the very least. Yeah. The way he bangs on about affordability, I, I would say not supported by good economic theory, but that's neither here nor there. The people who do believe his economic theory are deeply believing in him. We don't need to look much further than the guns debate that happened this week where he carved himself out some nice space with his supporters. He does a really nice job of getting his choir fired up and they enthusiastically support him. Even if he can't go take some of those moderate voters that Erno Tool struggled to get, he may eat Maxime Bernier's voters for lunch. So that's the one thing that I'm observing here. He is managing to get his choir, his base in place, and now he has a couple more years to build on that. So that's my big thought in federal politics. Michelle, I heard an affirmation there. Yeah, I think you're completely right, but I think there's even more to it with him in that he has demonstrated an ability to not only attract the, sort of the existing base, but grow it. He brought in a crazy number of memberships to the party. Like the, the, the amount of revenue his campaign generated was wild. So he, he does have appeal uh, for those who don't get it. They really don't get it. For those who do, they're right on board and, and that appeal seems to be growing. And it's worth noting that there's going to be a bit of a litmus test for him as a leader. On Monday, there's a federal by-election in Mississauga. The, the, the Liberals are running a seriously big gun candidate in the form of a former Ontario finance minister. Pierre Poilievre has been shunning the mainstream media. Chantal Hébert actually had a very interesting analysis about all that at some point. But he has been out stumping for this candidate. So this will be really interesting to see if his appeal does translate into votes and a new candidate in the caucus. Um, in terms of other federal political things, I will have to say I would agree with Joita that I think we're into a relatively stable period. And to me, it feels like this confidence and supply agreement struck with the NDP will help uh, Trudeau and, and his acolytes try to establish what I think they're probably going to look at as their legacy period. This, this, well, this may well be their last chance in the sun for this kind of thing. They have three years. The policies that they seem to be focusing on and pushing for are pretty ambitious in scope, and some of them are, are relatively uncharted territory in Canada. So that's where I think we stand in terms of what this government's up to. Thank you both for your thoughts on these topics. Coming up next, we head into the prairies, and we'll reflect on the stabbing that took place in Saskatchewan. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Welcome. 
Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuaig and Joy DeGupta. Let's continue our year in review. And let's stay in the world of politics for one more story. Provincial politics also provided a fascinating landscape. Elections took place in several provinces. A newly appointed premier in British Columbia, but Alberta has been in the spotlight all year long. It started with the United Conservative Party conducting a leadership review on Premier Jason Kenney. Kenney survived the vote, but resigned the post nonetheless. Danielle Smith won the UCP leadership race and was sworn in as Premier. Premier Smith shook up the cabinet and introduced a promised Alberta Sovereignty Act. The introduction of the act prompted Jason Kenney to offer a second resignation, this time as MLA. Michelle, what strikes you from Alberta politics? What a ride. Wow. This has been an absolutely fascinating story, even for those of us who don't live in Alberta. Um, For those who did, uh, one of my colleagues spent several years working out there before moving to Ontario this past year, and she said that a lot of this has been bubbling under the surface for a long time, and it's all been coming to a head. Uh, But I think we're talking a little bit about some of those forces that I was alluding to earlier in the convoy discussion in terms of Danielle Smith, the stances she holds and the support she attracts. This is a very, uh, this is a premier who, who has been very explicit about wanting to reset the relationship with the federal government, who is clearly going to take a much more combative tone. Um, but all of this is going to be interesting to see pan out next year when Albertans go to the polls. So we'll see if, if she's able to secure any kind of mandate there, because it's worth noting, she assumed the leadership through party votes rather than a general election. What strikes me is something that you just mentioned there, Michelle. It's not so much looking back on this year in Alberta politics. It's looking ahead to what is probably the most interesting provincial election that has happened in Canada, maybe since Ontario in 2018, maybe even before that. It's a really, really interesting one. Joita, what about you? What strikes you from Alberta politics? I think I'm on the same page as the both of you. I um, I think for those of us who maybe don't live in Alberta and don't follow it as closely, it did come as something of a surprise that Jason Kenney was effectively forced out. Uh, even though he survived the leadership uh, contest, it, the review, it still felt like he needed to step aside um, in that moment. And uh, I know I, me- I remember saying, oh, who knows, maybe he'll run in the leadership race. But I think he uh, felt that that ship had now sailed. Uh, Danielle Smith is a very interesting candidate, um, someone who's very, uh, if you'll allow me to say it, very Trumpian in nature, sort of pulling on those populist sentiments and someone who's positioned herself as willing to disrupt the prevailing political order and is willing to be far more combative towards the federal government than maybe even Jason Kenney. And so... When you look ahead to this election in a few months in Alberta, it's really going to be interesting to see if Albertans choose her brand of politics and her brand of conservatism. Because the last time I checked the provincial polls in uh, in Alberta, the NDP was still going strong. So the question looms large. Will a province like Alberta, which has traditionally voted conservative a lot of the time, in fact, vote in an NDP government for the second time? Because remember, we talked about this, I think, some months ago. There were eyebrows that shot up about the government's handling of the pandemic. They were very quick to relax some of those measures. And it would be very interesting to see if some of those decisions in the polls. Uh, But the NDP is going very strong and cannot be ruled out as a distinct contender in the election. So definitely one that we'll be looking to in to see how that shakes out in the next couple of months. Let's turn to one of the more jarring stories from this year, and that was the stabbing rampage in Saskatchewan. 11 people died and 18 others were injured on the James Smith Cree Nation and in the nearby village of Weldon. 
It sparked all kinds of questions about public safety and emergency preparedness, and once again, the lens of Indigenous justice was put into focus. Michelle, what's your reflection with a bit of space on the stabbings in Saskatchewan? Yeah, this was definitely one of the more upsetting stories to deal with over the course of the year. And I I will say, you talked about Indigenous justice and justice issues generally. That's kind of what stands out to me here. Um, It's worth kind of noting that if anyone were to talk about this story, it's almost impossible not to mention what a bad year in the headlines this has been for the RCMP. This was one of the reasons why. There were questions about why the full record of Miles Sanderson, the the, the suspect in the stabbing, was not fully disclosed. He'd been missing, uh, had not reported to authorities for months prior to turning up on the James Green Nation knife in hand. Um, we... There, there was a lot to unpack with this. The manhunt for, for Sanderson went on for three days, I believe, before he was was brought to ground and ultimately died in police custody. And that raises questions, too. We don't know exactly what happened with his arrest or how exactly he came to die, but he has died. And that is another shadow that kind of lies over these this whole community that's grieving the loss of 11 people. So there's a lot to, to deal with and, and unpack there all against the backdrop of just a genuine tragedy that's really torn a community apart. So even while we talk about those bigger issues, I think it's important not to lose sight of them. Yeah, the suffering in the community is, is one that you, you, you can't turn you can't turn an, uh, turn away from. It's, it's, it's a core part of this. But I also do think about the community, and I think about a lack of lessons learned from the Nova Scotia mass shooting a couple of years exactly. ago, where once again, a complete lack of communication as an emergency was unfolding put more people in danger. And we're going to have another inquiry. We're going to have more inquests. And once again, we're going to find out that over and over and over again, our authorities are incapable or unwilling to do what it takes to communicate transparently with the community. Joita, what's your reflection on the stabbings in Saskatchewan? I always find it hard to have, you know, I always find it hard to say things about incredible tragedies like this one. I mean, I think it's really important to keep the community front and center in our discussions and bear in mind that there are people who are still grieving lost loved ones. The aspect of this that really stood out to me is the conversation about rural policing and indigenous policing that I think is long overdue in this country. Uh, Indigenous communities have had a very difficult relationship with the police for the most part. And I think um, this particular case has really brought to bear some of the unique challenges around policing in rural areas. If you could think about Miles Sanderson, you know, basically get in, in a getaway car, Uh, evading the police for days at a time, it's hard to imagine the kind of a scenario playing out in Toronto or Vancouver. And so I think um, hopefully down the road, we, as you pointed out, we didn't really, I think, learn a lot from the Nova Scotia shootings. But my hope is that as we have inquiries and as we unpack what happened in Saskatchewan, there will be some attention paid to the situational factors and that there will be a closer examination of rural policing and Indigenous policing because one of the things that was pointed out, and I don't think received as much attention, is that there is a lack of representation of Indigenous communities in local police forces, and that's resulted in a breakdown of trust and a breakdown of communication. Mm. It would feel crass to put any other topic next to this one in this segment, so let's leave it there and take a break. Coming up next, we consider the ongoing war in Ukraine, some of the economic issues that have been a fallout from there, and we'll also talk about the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. This is Now with Dave Brown and the Now News Panel on AMI-tv.
Welcome back to our Year in Review news panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. We have several other topics to get to, and we'll begin with the war in Ukraine. Russia invaded Ukraine in February. The war rages on. Thousands of lives have been lost. Millions of people have been displaced and billions of dollars of support has been given to Ukraine. I've been giving you guys first word on this, but I want to go first this time around. I bristled a little bit when people were using the word quagmire about four days into the war. That was way too early to my mind. But now I think we've entered the point where we're looking at a long, long war and long war ahead. And Russia potentially has stumbled themselves into a quagmire here even through Ukrainian counteroffensive, it does not appear that the Ukrainians are interested in suing for peace, and the Russians don't seem particularly interested in that either. And now we're talking about dogfights, street by street, in communities in the eastern part of Ukraine. This is going to be a long haul. And uh, even though I bristled at the idea of a quagmire, I'm becoming a little more comfortable with that terminology. Joita, what's your takeaway from the war in Ukraine? and followed it very closely on a hyper-local level. Um, I think a number of observers and analysts felt that this war would be over fairly soon. You were looking at Ukraine uh, up against this superpower, which is Russia. And I think what's really stood out for me in terms of this story is the resilience of the Ukraine of Ukraine and its people. Um, they've put up stiff resistance. And now many analysts are saying not only are they pushing back, but they will likely regain some of what has been lost. Some people who are especially hopeful and optimistic are saying that um, they might even regain what was lost in 2014. So I don't know if that's the, really the case, but I think the storyline that is most compelling to me, and there's very little that is compelling about a war, uh, to be clear, um, is the resilience uh, of, of the people of Ukraine. Of course, it's not been without tremendous human suffering. We know we've accepted many refugees here in Canada alone, and it's been interesting and, and very powerful to the, the uh, Ukrainian community in Canada organize to bring refugees to this country. So it's been very interesting to see the treatment of those refugees, say, versus treatment of refugees from other parts of the world. But that's a separate conversation. But I think the other part of Ukraine, I don't want to, uh, of the conflict in Ukraine, I am uh, loath to preempt the conversation. I know we'll, we'll probably talk about economic issues. But I think where we've all felt the impact, each and every one of us, is on the impact to the economy and uh, how that's, you know, how that's brought about changes to fuel prices and possibly for the price of food as well. Yeah, the economy is next. But before we get there, Michelle, your takeaway from the war in Ukraine. Yeah, I, I completely agree with your assessment of the situation, Dave. I think uh, we're going to be here for a good while to come, uh, very unfortunately, because this has been uh, a real catastrophe for, for millions of people, like you said. It has been amazing to watch the resilience of the Ukrainian people. It's been amazing to watch uh, Vladimir Zelensky uh, really take center stage on the world order for a bit there. And also, speaking of the world order, that that's another thread that I find really interesting, is you have a, a really unusual degree of unanimity among most nations, and where the interest lies in seeing which countries have not spoken up to condemn Russia. It sort of uh, gives a bit of a snapshot of where some of the geopolitics at play right now, um, how those lines are falling and, and where those factions are developing. So I think there's a lot to to watch for with interest in the in the year ahead. But I worry that because we're in a bit of a quagmire situation that people risk losing sight of the sheer degree of human suffering that's going on. And that's uh, unfortunately does not show signs of ebbing anytime soon. 
Mm. As Joita was right to identify, the war in Ukraine has sent some significant ripples through the economy. Now, some of these are not related to the war in Ukraine, but let me run through a list of data points for you. I know, I know it can be a lot when I start firing off data, but Dave and data points. <laughs> eh, when we're talking about the economy, you gotta do you gotta do it with some numbers. So we know when it comes to the cost of food and fuel, that's been a huge part of the annualized inflation spikes that we saw to be around nine percent in Canada. It reached double double digits in parts of Europe. Central banks have been raising interest rates, which has eased inflation, but still puts a lot of pressure on cost of living, especially housing when mortgage rates have essentially tripled in a year. There has been a small dip in the stock market, not quite as catastrophic as some folks have talked about it. 6% in the Toronto Stock Exchange, 8% on the Dow Industrial. So not exactly catastrophe for the blue chips. However, Tech stocks have taken a beating. The tech-heavy Nasdaq was down almost 30% this year. For fear of bombarding you with too much data, allow me a few more indicators. Job numbers and economic growth do remain strong in Canada and the U.S. And one last thread is the collapse of cryptocurrency prices and the bankruptcy of the cryptocurrency exchange, FTX. I know, Michelle, I just hit you with a whirlwind of data. (laughs) But what's your big observation when it comes to the economy? Uh, um, this is, as, as we all know, not my, my deepest area of analysis here. And yet I keep dragging I, you into these conversations. I know, no, you, you, you educate me. This is good. I appreciate it. Um, but yeah, I think we're into a situation. Like, I, I, it's interesting because we, we've talked about all these data points. Uh, we've traced them back, I think, quite rightly in many cases to having a lot of ties to the war in Ukraine. I suspect these kinds of economic issues surfacing now are the ones on which elections will be won and lost even a couple of years from now when these numbers are out of date. Uh, I think we're seeing a foundation laid for for some difficult economic times, and I think those are going to shape a lot of conversations to come. Inflation uh, is one that I don't think is going away anytime soon. Um, There's it's almost hard to know where to where exactly where to dive in with these numbers, but I think they all tell a similar story. There's a lot of soundness in place, but the vulnerability that it does exist, I think, is exactly the kind that's going to worry people and mobilize people. I'm I'm going to use a cliche here in what I'm about to describe, but it feels like in the interest of trying to deal with a spike in inflation, the Bank of Canada and other central banks are cutting off their nose to spite their face. They're going to create a man-made recession when there wasn't necessarily a recession coming. And they've put a lot of pressure on people. I'll reiterate that mortgage factor, that mortgages have essentially tripled this year. Mortgage rates have essentially tripled in Canada. So we can talk about how the price of your lettuce went up a little bit or maybe how you had to buy some generic brands to get to the grocery store. But when we're talking about raising the annualized interest payments on somebody's home from a couple thousand dollars to like $8,000, $10,000, $12,000, that's going to have a massive, massive impact on people's lives. Juita, your thought on the economy. I think it's interesting if you're not an economist for the average person, uh, it might be something of a revelation or something to pay attention to just how interconnected we are. Uh, Here's this war happening in far off Ukraine and it's having these massive impacts here in Canada. I think unless you're an economist or someone who is a business reporter and this is your bread and butter, um, you may not really be focused on the interrelatedness and the interconnectedness of our global economic system. And I think that's a really interesting thing to look at. But you're right, I think a recession is coming. I'm 
unsure what other measures the Bank of Canada could take other than to uh, raise the, the, the key interest rate. Uh, it is a way to try and bring down inflation. And we saw the inflation going down gradually slightly over the last few months. Uh, but you're right. I think the impact on, on interest rates was Oh no, we didn't. Be, uh, I wouldn't go so far to say as severe as what we saw in the in the late in the late eighties, for example, with you know people just walking away because their mortgages became so unaffordable. But I, I honestly am at a bit of a loss as to what they could have done other than uh, you know look at the at raising the interest rate. Um, with that said, I think the other piece around this is just where ordinary people are really feeling the pinch is in the price of groceries going through the roof. Uh, there's been some studies and analysis done that says that going into 2023, sad to say it, but that's pretty much going to stay the same. People's grocery bills have ballooned out of control. And we saw the NDP motion on reflation. Um, and I know, having spoken to a number of economists at that time about the motion on reflation, that there was some pushback around this idea that it was all corporate greed and not other economic factors. So really, from the point of view of an average person, your grocery bill has just gotten that much more expensive um, and it doesn't look like it's going to go down anytime soon. So really, I don't have too many solutions to offer because I'm not an economist, but it's clear to me that this, this trend with heightened inflation and a possible recession is what we're looking at going into 2023. The one other threat that I'll pull on... Yeah, Joey, you got to be quick here. you got to be quick. The one other threat I'll pull on is that there have been a number of, uh, of companies that have unionized, like the Starbucks and the Amazon. So perhaps in 2023, we'll see more people unionizing as well as a way to push back against the prevailing economic regime. Mm, I, I do like that observation. That's a good one. With the rail union disputes in the U.S. and some of the disputes here in Ontario, that one's to keep a close eye on in 2023 for sure. Okay, guys, Absolutely. here's a super fun one. Super fun one. How about social media and content moderation? We never talk about that on this panel. Uh, it remained <laughs> prominent throughout the year. I'll take you all the way back to the heat that Joe Rogan was taking in the early part of the winter around vaccine misinformation. There were key questions about what role Spotify had to play in moderation on its platform, being the exclusive platform for the Joe Rogan experience. We had Elon Musk eventually buying Twitter, and that brought major questions about what voices may be enabled or brought back onto the platform. Of course, Canada has been trying to legislate its own content curation guidelines. Let's call that process uh, thorny. I think thorny might be the right word there. There's been some other stuff too, though, like Alex Jones uh, of InfoWars fame got absolutely slapped down in Texas court and has now declared bankruptcy for the terrorizing he did of the parents of the victims of the Sandy Hook shooting. So it's like, it, it, it's been one of these years where it remains front and center and it is interesting. Joita, any lessons learned from another wacky year in content moderation? I think there are two things for me. The first one is that... Um, if you're a social media company, whether it's Spotify or Twitter, if you're a social media company of a significantly large size, you will inevitably realize that opening things up and allowing for a free-for-all is not the panacea you thought it would be. Because eventually, uh, your advertisers, and you are reliant on your advertisers, your advertisers will come back and push back against you because of the chaos and disorder that is brought about when... Um, when social media isn't adequately regulated. So loath as I am to say it, uh, market forces and the power of advertisers who don't like instability, who don't like controversy, that might be a way for uh, social media companies to have to learn to moderate themselves. With that said, there I do also see a role for government, especially in regulating hate speech and uh, discriminatory content online. So I will be watching uh, the discussions in Canada to try and create some um, some you know, guidelines to monitor social media very closely in the year to come. 
Michelle, I'm inclined to agree with Joita. My observation and my lesson learned is that money continues to talk in the world of content moderation. But are there any lessons uh, from this wacky year that you've taken away? Yeah, I, I would largely agree with that. And I think uh, in that spirit, it will be very interesting to see how things proceed because they're taking such huge losses right now. Um, I think uh, I, I, it's hard to imagine exactly how it's going to go. I, I'm, I'm long past predicting what Elon Musk is going to say or do at any point on any issue. Um, <laughs> but that kind of a, of instability, I think you, you're right to, to point out all the things you have. I don't have a whole lot to add to that, honestly. But uh, um, I, I do think we might also be staring down the end of some of these platforms. I, I, I will be interested to see if, if Twitter is still a relevant thing. I think it'll still exist this time next year. But I do wonder uh, to what degree its status is going to change. Mm. And obviously, if one gives way, something else will rise to take its place, whether it's Mastodon or something we've never even heard of. I don't know. We shall see. <laughs> I think the Mastodon revolution has not exactly kicked off in the way that some folks uh, thought it might. Let's uh, jump over to a really serious story. Again, we've got so much to get to that it was hard to put these in order, but abortion rights in the United States. A major development took place south of the border when their Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade with their Dobbs decision. It essentially kicked abortion and reproductive rights down to the state level. Michelle, what's your thought on how that decision played out over the rest of the year? Yeah, to me, what was very interesting to watch was the the midterms and what happened there. And I think there's no question that that the the overturning of Roe versus Wade had a lot to do with the lack of red wave uh, for for years. People were predicting an absolute bloodbath in the November 22 midterms. Uh, they were expecting Republicans to easily seize control of the House and the Senate. That was not to be. They do have control of the House, but not by a huge amount. The Democrats actually have improved control over the Senate. Um, a lot of Trump-backed candidates are people who uh, were seen to have a pretty easy path, find themselves with a lot more difficulty in the face of people really responding to this abortion decision, pushing back on that, not wanting to see those rights or other minority rights that began to get some scrutiny in the wake of that decision, they didn't want to, they didn't want to see those things attacked. And a number of the candidates who would have been most pleased by the Supreme Court decision earlier in this in the year didn't really fare that well in the electoral field. So I found that really, really interesting to watch. I'm very interested to see all the court battles that are going on as states try every which way they can to to get around that Roe versus Wade decision. You have all kinds of court decisions upholding or overturning bans before they even take effect. There's a lot of pushback on a number of fronts, and I'm finding it very interesting to watch. I also was struck by the way this played out in the midterms to the point that perhaps our industry got it wrong a little bit. A deeply unpopular president, really high gas prices, a again, I'll call it a thorny economy. It was seeming like it was going to be a very difficult midterm, but by by making this decision, the Supreme Court touched a third rail that a lot of independents and a lot of moderates, even moderate Republicans, didn't want touched. And a lot of people showed up and the exit polls showed it. Abortion and reproductive rights were a huge driver to the polls for a lot of people as their number one issue when a lot of pundits thought it was the economy. So for once, it wasn't the economy, stupid. Uh, Juida, what's your reflection on the way this decision impacted and played out the rest of the year? Yeah, I think the midterms really did become something of a referendum on abortion rights. And I, I will echo what Michelle said, where uh, traditionally the party of the president, so in this case, the Democrats tend to do badly in the midterm elections, the bloodbath, if you will. But in this instance, they did much better. And I think it's because there's been a real pushback against anti-abortion sentiment and a number of candidates who might have 
successfully argued against abortions did a lot did not do as well as they might have anticipated. It's been very interesting to see the number of referenda in a number of of states, uh, Michigan, California, Vermont, trying to uphold abortion rights. Um, so. I admit when I first re, uh, when you first sort of put the question to me, I was a bit taken aback. My initial thought was, oh, my God, did that happen this year, too? Uh, but it's going to be very interesting to see how this decision reverberates in the years to come. Yeah. I mean, even you mentioned some what would be perceived as fairly liberal states, Kansas. The people of Kansas showed up and said, no, nah, we don't want this. We They wanted they, like the people had a referendum and enshrined reproductive rights and abortion rights say no the state legislature cannot touch this so people even in conservative places like kansas showed up and and made and made their voices heard on that issue okay let's finish here guys the death of queen elizabeth ii i don't think the story requires much of an intro lots of ink and oxygen has been spilled on this topic joita what's the big thread to pull from the death of the queen I mean, it wasn't surprising. Uh, she was 96 years old, so I think a lot of people saw that one coming. I think what I'd be interested to see is whether or and to what extent the Commonwealth um, is held together under Charles III. Uh, we know that there were many places, uh, Barbados being the most recent, where they've now declared republics, and I would wonder if uh, the Commonwealth will be sustained under Charles III or if more countries will seek to uh, throw off the yoke, as it were. Michelle, what do you think the thread to pull from the death of Queen Elizabeth II is? Uh, I think the, the one to watch will be to what degree um, anti-monarchist sentiment starts to take root or, or become more, uh, comes further to the fore in Canada. We do know that there is a, a Republican faction here. Um, a lot of people were expecting them to be a lot more vocal with this particular succession uh, in light of the fact that the Queen was a relatively popular figure and Charles was less so. He is now King and those voices have not really come up. So I don't personally anticipate a lot of constitutional change in Canada just because, as, as we've talked about on this panel, no one seems to want to go there under any circumstances. But um, Joita's talk about Barbados is a real reminder that you just never know where this is going to go and where this kind of conversation will lead. Um, I'll be interested to see if the monarchy uh, changes its stripes in any way under under King Charles. I, I doubt it a little bit, but uh, it will be interesting to observe. I want to thank you both for everything that you do as part of this panel all year. This can be a very challenging balancing act. Taking on. A um, I'll be interested to see if the monarchy uh, changes its stripes in any way under under King Charles. I, I doubt it a little bit, but uh, it will be interesting to observe. I want to thank you both for everything that you do as part of this panel all year. This can be a very challenging balancing act, taking on a lot of different subjects, some of which out, are outside of our area of expertise. Your perspectives and thoughts on all these stories are always so appreciated, not just by me, but by listeners and colleagues and so many folks around the show. So Michelle, even though we will be talking off the air, I do want to wish you on the air a wonderful holiday season. Well, thank you very much. It's always a real pleasure to be here. The panel is great and a very happy holiday to you and the whole audience. And Joey, a similar deal. We'll be talking off the air a couple times in the next few weeks during some of the testing while we're on hiatus, but I wanted to make sure I publicly said thank you and have a wonderful holiday season to you and the family. Yeah, everybody listening. I feel that way too. It's always fun. After the break, I'll have the regional news update and Brock Richardson stops by for a sports chat. The quarterback of the Los Angeles Rams... Baker Mayfield made me eat some words about him last night. So we'll talk about that with Brock. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Friday, December the 9th, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Michael McNeely reviews the new horror comedy, The Menu. And uh, we'll say goodbye as we uh, prepare for a one-month hiatus, as we do a little bit of renovations and new studio spaces. Well, in fact, the renovations and studio spaces are done. Studio 7 down the hall is uh, up. The control room is up. But we're closing the door on Studio 5 as we uh, continue to retinker and rethink how we deliver AMI-TV to you. And this live show will be part of that, as well as the launch of Kelly and Rumya. No longer Kelly and Company. Kelly and Rumya coming your way on January the 9th of 2023. So we have to make sure we chase all the gremlins out of the system before we launch, relaunch those new shows for you on January the 9th. But don't worry, I've not been canceled. I'm simply being put on ice for a couple of weeks. Let's get to the regional news update. Beginning in British Columbia, where BC's new finance minister, Christine Conroy, is hoping to bring a fresh perspective to her portfolio. Conroy says living in rural communities gives her a different viewpoint on the economy. You have different experiences growing up in rural BC than you do in the city, and uh, it's just that's the way it is. But I, you know, have a good understanding of what happens in rural BC and and how dependent we are on the resource industries and what you know what what they're a huge contributor to our economy and and the, and the province. So it's it's a good perspective to have. In the most recent fiscal update, BC ran a surplus of over six billion dollars. Over to the prairies, where the Alberta government has introduced legislation aimed at making police forces more accountable. Public Safety Minister Mike Ellis explains that most public consultations had a common thread. One thing that came up consistently was the need to change how complaints against the police are investigated to end the system of police investigating police. The legislation answers those long-lasting Uh, calls to reform the public complaints process by establishing an independent agency to handle complaints against police. The Police Review Commission will receive complaints, carry out investigations, and conduct disciplinary hearings. Over to Ontario, where Ontario is allowing pharmacists to prescribe Paxlovid. Starting this Monday, pharmacists can prescribe the antiviral COVID-19 drug virtually or in person. Health Minister Sylvia Jones says the program is voluntary. We are quite optimistic that there will be many pharmacists that choose to do this because it is another pathway for them to assist their patients directly. So it's really about getting access into community faster. Public health officials believe this could ease some strain on hospitals. And then over to the Atlantic provinces, where Nova Scotia Health will deploy its mobile primary care clinic in Digby and Weymouth over the weekend and into Monday. This service is aimed at helping residents in the area who are without a family doctor or nurse practitioner access care. The clinics will be set up at the Digby and Area Health Services Centre Saturday and Sunday and at the Weymouth Medical Centre on Monday. Residents in need of care must call Nova Scotia Health to book an appointment. These are not walk-in clinics. That's your look at the regional news. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Oh! 
So, Brock, you and I have been talking consistently about the scandals around Hockey Canada. So you did a little bit of digging last night when a news story broke about what I'm calling some release forms that Hockey Canada is making players at the World Juniors sign. Yes. So if we go over this in that what's going to be happening is every single member of the team, whether coach, staff, it does not matter, must fill out these um, these forms. And basically it starts with, uh, have you had any criminal history? And or have you been ever threatened with disciplinary action through the organization of Hockey Canada? And then they must also release the ability to do a full social media search on top of all of that. Most of this I am okay with. The one that I am kind of, I don't know what to think about it, is the social media search. I don't know if this is a case of, listen, we are where we are as an organization of Hockey Canada. If you want to participate with us, this is what you have to do. There's the other part of me that says, is this a little bit invasive? The first two parts of this, totally get it. And even the third one, Dave, I I, I understand. I'm just wondering if it's a bit too invasive or... Are we where we are? And this is just what has to happen. Your thoughts? It strikes me as an organization that misunderstands the issue they're having. Certainly there is a lot of personal responsibility around the alleged sexual assaults in 2018 and 2003 and other issues surrounding Hockey Canada's handling of of alleged sexual assaults. Like there's no doubt about that. But this is putting to, this is putting the onus singularly on the players and not on the organization itself and the failings right. they've had. If this was really important to them, they would be doing this screening themselves. They wouldn't just hand me a piece of paper and have me sign it and go, bah, 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 now I can go represent the country. It totally, it's, it's once again, Hockey Canada misunderstanding why they're in trouble. Yeah, yeah, and I, and and I mean I, I'm I'm not trying to oust myself or anyone else that reads these things, but how often do you just go, yep, signed it, done, and then you think to yourself the terms and agreements, and you look back, and if you really read those terms and agreements, you may not actually want to know what's in those terms and agreements. In a case like this, if if I if I'm an athlete with Hockey Canada, I am reading it, and and you know dotting my I's and crossing my T's to make sure that I know exactly what's happening. But my thing on this, Dave, is you're dealing with teenagers who want to represent the country, whose brains have not fully developed until the age of 30. We we understand that to be true. And, and this just scares me. And it sort of just feels like to me, oh, look what we're doing. We have this paper and we're, we're doing all this. And to your point, I, I, I do, I agree. Hockey Canada is completely missing the mark here. Brock, let's shift gears here, but stay in the world of junior hockey because you've been doing a little bit of podcast listening, and I know you guys talked about the World Junior Championships on Kelly and Company yesterday as you were filling in for Rumya, but you've been struck by a thread of conversation about the popularity of junior hockey in Canada. Yes, I was listening to a podcast which is called All Over the Map, done by a avid listener of AMI as a whole, Ali Musa, and he had um, a 570 uh, news contributor whose name has escaped me all of a sudden. I can't find his name on my on my sheet, but um, yes, he's he's had him him 
on the show. And part of it is he's a part of the Kitchener Rangers uh, broadcast. Mike Farwell is the name. And uh, he's part of the Kitchener Rangers broadcast. And one of the questions that was brought up is why is it that junior hockey from a marketing standpoint doesn't get marketed? And Mike Farwell basically said that's because people for some reason would rather pay more money than less. And it seems funny to say this, but then the World Junior Hockey Championship gets, uh, you know, marketed. Everyone drapes themselves in the Canadian flag and we all run around and be happy. Part of that to me is because, again, that tournament gets marketed as the marquee thing for Canada and TSN for sure. So that's sort of my thoughts on it. Canadians love to talk about themselves as hockey fans. They're NHL fans. Like they, they support their NHL team, and oftentimes they barely know anything about another hockey team other than their team. They very much wear their stripes of their team, and that's it. They know nothing else. Now, I'm not maybe I'm overgeneralizing a little bit, but the thing that, that hurts junior hockey in Canada, well, there's a couple, if you'll allow me, Brock. Number one, it's extremely regional. Right. It matters to the people of Sudbury how the Wolves are playing, but it's tough for somebody in Ottawa, even if they're cheering for the 67s to really care about the Sudbury Wolves, let alone somebody who's rooting for the Regina Pats or let alone somebody uh, rooting for the Tri-City Americans. Right. It's, it's hard to build a national brand around the quote CHL because you have three different conferences that only end up playing each other in the Memorial Cup at the end of the year. Now, I, I do think around the Memorial Cup, you do get some of that attention that kicks off. But just throughout the year, it, it, there's just not a lot of bandwidth for it. And the other reason why I think it doesn't work, despite the fact that it's a major pipeline of NHL talent, all three of those leagues in Canada, the thing is, is when you look at the pipeline that is college football in the United States or college basketball in the United States, there's an immediate connection between the player you watch on Saturday and the player you watch on Sunday. The guys who go into the NFL draft straight out of university are going to be on the field on Sunday. There's no gap between them being drafted and them playing. It's the same thing in the NBA. The stars of the college game are the stars of the pro game, and it only takes a year or two before they emerge and blossom as such. There's just too big a gap. An NHL player gets drafted or a hockey player gets drafted at 18, and for the most part, they're not in the league until they're 22, 23, 24. That's a six-year gap. People just lose interest. Right, and I, and I also think the other thing is that the the regions uh, don't have the same marketing ability as uh, other teams. Even even the junior hockey championships, even the Memorial Cup, get gets marketed better than your Sudbury Wolves, your Brampton Battalion. I mean, I I used to go every Sunday to the Brampton Battalion when I lived there, when they had, you know, uh, Wojtek Wolski, Matt Duchesne, and we know what's happened to at least Matt Duchesne, and he's become such a real great player. I watched many games of his, but could you ever see five, 6,000 people in Brampton supporting this team? Not until they were in the conference final and everybody went, whoa, we actually have a good team. And my dad and I would be sitting there going, we, we knew this all year. 
where have you guys been? Yeah. Like, you know, and it, it's like, it's like, what have you done for me lately sort of attitude? And when, when they get there, that's when you get the support, but it's hard for those small media markets to be like, yeah, let's get out the Sudbury Wolves when you have a choice of other sports teams that you'd rather wear the flag for. So to me, uh, that's, uh, where it is. And, and I have to give credit to Ali began. And if he's listening or watching, then oh, I, he I will is. say he is that, that, uh, you know, thank you for this topic because I, I, I never thought about it this way. And, and it's the truth. And, and Mike did a, a great job at outlining it. And he said, this is a million dollar question that nobody can answer. There uh, are some fans down the road from you in London who are screaming at us right now, being like, we love our London Knights. You don't talk ill about junior hockey. But again, it speaks to the point. No one in Halifax cares about the London Knights. It's only yeah, London but, Knights fans that care about the London Knights. But that's because London has built themselves over years and years of doing this. Other organizations can't do that. One year they're really good and the next year they're garbage, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's just the yeah. way it is. <laughs> Brock, we got to be quick on this last one, but I do want to get your reaction to the Thursday night football game. And let me start by saying this is a bit of a mea culpa on my end. Let me walk through a timeline here. We talked about quarterback Baker Mayfield on Tuesday, who had been released on Monday <laughs> by the Carolina Panthers. And I said, Brock, he is irrelevant. He's going to go be a backup in San Francisco or maybe fill in for Lamar Jackson for a week or two in Baltimore. By Tuesday afternoon... He was claimed by the Los Angeles Rams, who I'd forgotten had injuries to both of their quarterbacks. Uh, all three of their quarterbacks had injuries to them. So the Rams picked him up through waivers. The Rams had a game last night on Thursday Night Football. So timeline, Baker gets claimed off waivers on Tuesday. He probably flies on the private jet or first class to L.A., on Tuesday night from Carolina across the country, maybe gets into the team facility on Wednesday, probably watches the team do a walkthrough in the practice, maybe gets his hands on the playbook. One series into the game last night against the Oakland Raiders, the Las Vegas Raiders, sorry, that's a fine for me, the Las Vegas Raiders, he gets put into the game with like probably never having practiced with his team and he looked miserable for three quarters. Brock, with 10 minutes left last night, the Rams are down by 13 points. Flash forward 10 minutes, and the Rams win the game 17-16 on a touchdown pass with 10 seconds left by Baker Mayfield as part of a 98-yard drive with less than two minutes and no timeouts. Brock, Baker Mayfield made me eat my words last night, and I am delighted. Listen, here's the thing. Baker may there was a penalty that was give a given uh, for where it was a 15 yard penalty after he'd been sacked and that was wiped off the board. I, I'm going to be a bit of a pessimistic here and I'm going to give you two quick points. Number one, I, if you're a player that's been claimed off waivers and you want to prove something, that's what you're going to do. I, I, you know, I, ex I didn't expect that out of Baker Mayfield where I'm going to be a bit of a pessimist here is tell you that, okay, you did this to me once. What are you going to do for the next three weeks? Are you going to show yourself? Are you going to be the person we said? This was all fine and good and dandy, and you can eat all the curl pie you want. But for me, it's cool. I give him a high five. Prove it to me over the next three weeks so that you can get that contract. Up until then, what you did, I've seen you do this before on a flash pan. Let, let's see. Can you, 
can you hold the consistency and earn your way onto the roster? That's where I'm going to be a bit of a pessimistic, but I will say congratulations for going 98 yards because that was something nobody expected. Magic. Yeah. Absolute magic. I loved it. Brock, thank you for this, sir. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you off the air on Monday. Yes, we will. And uh, for those out there, have a great holiday. We're watching and listening, and publicly, you have a great holiday as well. Thank you very much, Brock. You too. That's Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk. Let's bring in Alex Smythe at the AMI Weather Desk. This your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We're starting in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, where it's mainly cloudy and a high of 4 degrees. In Charlottetown, PEI, there's up to 10 millimeters of rain expected today with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of three degrees. In St. John, New Brunswick, it's a mix of sunny clouds, wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of two degrees. In Quebec City, Quebec, it's sunny, minus four as the high, but it's feeling like minus 15. In Toronto, Ontario, it's mainly cloudy. The high is two degrees, but it's feeling closer like a minus six. In Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, it's a mix of sun and clouds. Minus three is the high, but the wind chill has it feeling like minus 14. Over to Brandon, Manitoba, where it's mainly sunny. The high is minus seven with a wind chill of minus 28. In Regina, Saskatchewan, where it's been bitterly cold the last few days, it's a mix of sun and clouds with clouds increasing as the day goes on. The high is minus six degrees and it's feeling like minus 26. In Lethbridge, Alberta, a mix of sun and clouds clearing up in the afternoon. The high is two degrees with a wind chill of minus nine. In Red Deer, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds, minus five as the high and feeling like it's minus 18. Up to Whitehorse, Yukon, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of snow today. The high is minus 12 and that wind chill makes it feel like minus 22. To Kelowna, BC, where it's cloudy with a chance of snow flurries this morning, and then it'll become a mix of sun and clouds later. The high is minus one. And finally, we head to Vancouver, BC, where it's cloudy and a chance of rain. Wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of five degrees. That's our AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, Michael McNeely reviews the new horror comedy film, The Menu. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's talk movies with Michael McNeely. Michael has thoughts on the new film, The Menu, starring Anya Taylor-Joy. Before we welcome Michael in, let's take a sneak peek at the movie. In this clip, a team of cooks prepare a gourmet meal in an open kitchen facing several tables of customers. A chef walks out to the dining area with the clap of his hands. The cooks stand straight as he gets everyone's immediate attention. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Hawthorne. 
I'm Julian Slowick, and tonight it'll be our pleasure to feed you. The curtain rises. Over the next few hours, you will ingest fat, salt, sugar, protein, bacteria, fungi, various plants and animals, and at times, entire ecosystems. But I have to beg of you one thing. It's just one. Do not eat. Taste, savor, relish. Consider every morsel that you place inside your mouth. Be mindful, but do not eat. Our menu is too precious for that. Oh my gosh, I am hooked. That's a clip from the menu. Michael McNeely is here with a review. Hey, good morning, Michael. And just to remind you, please let me know. When you're ready, I've, I've baked something for you. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and I promise, Michael, that I won't eat it. I will taste and savor and relish it. Michael, this film clearly takes its title quite seriously. So, pardon the pun, but what's on the menu? Well, I forgot to describe for our listeners that I have a plate and I have a bowl that's covering something that Dave has promised to eat. Uh, but we'll get back to that later. What's on the menu of this is a thrilling, thrilling time on an island um, one evening, having $250 to eat. Um, I don't have that kind of money, and I know you don't either, because you give me all your money. So um, the question is, who goes around spending money on things that they don't even know that they're going to have? It's very interesting to think about. And I think it's something that this film plays around with. So I'm not going to tell you what's on the menu. I think you have to figure out whether or not it's worth paying $1,250 for. But what I will tell you is that it's worth buying a ticket for. There are a lot of different ways this film is being described in terms of genre. Reviewers are using different terminologies. Even like the, the Cineplex app is using different terminologies. What genre would you say is the best one to accurately label the menu? It's funny because I brought my intervener to the film with me yesterday. I didn't tell her anything about what the movie was about. I do that sometimes. I, I experiment on my support staff. Please forgive me. Um, and sometimes you don't want to tell people what the genre is, because if you tell them what the genre is, they have all these expectations that come with the genre. So I just kind of imagine going into this movie completely ignorant of what it's about, that that would be the best thing ever. But unfortunately, we do have marketing and publication and all those kinds of things where we have to advertise what the film is about, including this segment. Um, so I think we have to classify the film as a horror comedy. The film is also quite stylish in the way that it's presented. It doesn't just use food as a prop. They're capturing a culinary art experience from different perspectives. What did you make of that stylistic choice? Well, it's interesting. It's a, it's a different world that I'm not exposed to, but definitely a world living into one too that you know a lot about. Um, there's, there's all these restaurants that we probably couldn't afford to go to. 
and I specialize in a lot of different um, stylistic meals and different dishes and, you know, artistic ways of arranging food on the plate that you would just forget about if you were really hungry and you would just eat the whole thing right away. Um, I, think, I think this is a movie that is a class commentary. It's a commentary on the lifestyles of the rich and famous. And it's a commentary on how hard it is to break into that and why, what kind of trauma you might experience when you do break into it, if you do break into it at all. So I think it's, it's definitely an area that's ripe for commentary. There is quite an ensemble cast here. Household names, new and old. One of the stars is Anya Taylor-Joy. You may recognize her from Queen's Gambit, the Netflix series. But there's also folks like Ray Fiennes and John John Leguizamo. I really butchered that one. What were your thoughts on this ensemble cast and their performances? This film nails diversity. It nails multiculturalism. And it also nails class commentary at the same time. I think the two strongest performances are the two people you mentioned, um, Anya Taylor Tui and Ralph Beads. Um, and then just from watching the trailer with us, you can see that Ralph is, he has a presence in his phone with a clap of his hands. He gets everyone's attention and he tells everyone what to expect for that evening. Anya is just fantastic. She has so many lines that make me laugh out loud. And not to wound the ending, but she she may or may not turn the tables on the chef. And the way, if she does, the way that she would do it would be just a, um, I guess, a reinvention of the final gold trope that I haven't seen ever. So I'm really hoping that this will start a new, a new wave in the horror genre. But um, you know, I know, I know you you butchered John Lewis Gamble's name or whatever his last name is. How do you say that again? John Leguizamo. Leguizamo. Yes. Sure, close enough. I guess we, we owe him an apology. We need to give him some money later. But um, I I just noticed him in passing. I think, I think a lot of people just sacrifice themselves, no pun intended, just because they're character actors in this film, like we talked about with Toby Jones. A lot of these people are just here just for guests and conversation. Michael, I can already tell you liked the movie. Is there something that could have been done better? Any improvements or substitutions on the menu? I can't wait to feed you. Uh, I'm very excited about my, my dish that I have prepared. So once again, please don't forget to have it once you leave. Um, I think we, we wrote these questions in advance, not knowing that the phone was going to be perfect. So I think uh, there's slight things that could have been improved. I guess there's maybe some more backstory with some of the characters. But again, if you give them more backstory, that means they're kind of detracted from the larger picture overall. I think, I think we just have to trust this movie to go with it and to go with the film. Michael, one of the things that I'm always on about is that there's too many remakes, too many reboots, too many sequels, too many prequels. <laughs> this is an original movie. 
and that's rare these days. Ultimately, what did you think of it? Um, I think I, I should serve you what I have here first. So I'm just going to lift the bowl, and you say I have prepared you some scotch tape. Um, <laughs> so you said you promised you promised that you would eat this. So you need to eat this now. Okay, I've made this for you. Oh, a, so um, fair I will enough. have it. I will ship it to your house after. Okay. Now, careful there, careful there, Michael. You almost broke your bowl. Yes, you can, you can always lick the bowl afterwards. <laughs> um, just for all of those who watch it, if you have no idea why I did that, you will know why I did that after you watch the film. Um, so I think ultimately we're talking about something original, we're talking about something not alive. People have experienced the world of the witch and famous. We're talking about people getting their, their dues, people getting their comeuppance. I think there's just so many interesting ideas with this film. I think it's it's a, it's a screenplay that started on the blacklist in 2009, and that's just a list of films that people think were unfilmable. But I'm really happy that this film turned out to be filmable. I think Ralph Fiennes will be the new um, Kathy, Kathy Bates or just something like that, you know what I mean? It's just, it's a, it's a remarkable performance. I really hope that he gets an Oscar nom for this. And I think Anya Taylor Toy is going to be the new it girl because she, she fights him at every level. She is there, she sees him for who he is and she calls him out on his BS. Um, and I haven't even gotten into the part where they talk about film criticism. I was laughing my gut off. And I was also terrified at the same time. So I, it's been a long time since I found a film like this. I think you can compare it with Shaun, Shaun of the Dead and Cabin in the Woods and all those films that surprise you for being so funny and so scary at the same time. So, Michael, let's wrap up here. What do you rate this film out of 10? One Michelin stars to 10 Michelin stars. Well, why don't we say 10 scotch tips out of 10? It's a very artistic experience, by the way. If you eat this, I promise you, you will never eat again. Okay, that's well done. Hey, Michael, thank you for this. We always appreciate your reviews. Have a great day and a great weekend. And would you also provide the disclaimer that I am an entertainment critic, not a food critic, and that my food selections are probably not the best ones. That was entertainment critic, not food critic, Michael McNeely, with a review of the menu. The film is available in theaters and is rated for a pirate. It's rated R. Coming up after the break, we have our last roundtable conversation of the broadcast year. And now with Dave Brown. As we head towards our one-month hiatus while we test a new studio and a new control room. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. We'll bring in Alex and Eliza for a chat in just a moment, but let's set up the story for you first. 
Airbnb is introducing some New Year's Eve rental restrictions. Daria Albinger has the story. So you'd like to rent a place to ring in 2023? You might not be able to. Airbnb is putting new limits on who can rent one of its properties over New Year's weekend in the U.S. and 10 other countries in an effort to cut down on noisy house parties. That means those who have a negative account history or no history at all will be prohibited from renting over the holiday weekend. They're also giving out noise sensors to hosts to alert them of a potential party in progress. Daria Albinger, ABC News. Oh, no, your party house is being used for a party. How dare they? Here's the thing, as before I bring in Alex and Eliza on this. As an Airbnb host, it's not like a hotel, right? If I go to Hotels.com and I reserve a room at a hotel, there's really nothing that hotel can do to stop me from reserving the room. Airbnb and VRBO, these websites, it's a lot more collaborative. The host ultimately gets to decide who rents the place. So to me... I see this as Airbnb trying to do a little bit of uh, good publicity, a little bit of good marketing. And to me, I'd say it's unnecessary. Alex Smythe, you get the first word on this. What do you think? Well, I think uh, along the lines of what you're thinking, Dave, like I think why they're doing this is to help kind of protect Airbnb from any potential liability damages or things like that. I don't know what the the contract or the negotiations are for a host in Airbnb, but this may be a way to help ensure that, okay, this is on the host, this isn't on Airbnb. They're not liable if their guests are, you know, if they trash a place or if they're over noisy or if there's issues involved with it. You know, for the most part, I, I kind of agree. It's like, well, it's, you, you're choosing to rent out your place during New Year's. Do you think yeah, what do you gonna, think one is person is going to go over? Yeah, oh, one person's going to sit in the in in your your apartment or your house just by themselves quietly watch the the clock tick to midnight and go to bed. No, there's going to be people there, but there's also the arguments like okay, it's fine if there's a couple people there, but there's stories where people there's like 200 people show up to a place or or whatnot. So it's like I there there's the middle ground as well that uh, you kind of take into account too. But uh yeah, I mean it's, so what if, if if you can't book a place if you got a negative review or or no history? Well, clearly you're trying to do something on the fly here, and I mean there's probably ways around it. You could book a book a place right before for one night, and and then you get a rating, and then you can book a, a New Year's place. Who knows? Oh, I like that workaround, Alex. Alex, <laughs> thinking about some strategies here. Eliza, yep. what do you think? Is this a public relations uh, overstretch by Airbnb here, or are they on to something? It's it's a like it's gonna happen. It's just gonna happen anyways. It's just how sneaky do the people who are renting the place have to be when they do it? The loudness alarm. Like, what if the person's watching a loud football game? Like, uh, how loud will it have to be to set off the alarm? Like that mm-hmm. seems a little ridiculous to me. I I get the negative if they have a negative review before that makes sense, but. No reviews. I don't know. But it's why just... should they ever be allowed to rent if they have if they have like a negative score on the app? Right. Yeah. Like if they're gonna trash a place, they're gonna trash it on June second or on December thirty first. But maybe that negative review was more of a misunderstanding between a host and a guest, and now that person is they can never rent anything ever again. It, it, so. Yeah. It, it's <laughs> it's it like to me it strikes me as a weird one. Okay. One last question before we get out of here in regards to this because I think you've both sort of reflected it, and I'm gonna take a controversial position. I feel only so much sympathy slash very little sympathy to an Airbnb host who gets their place trashed. 
if you have like a 14 bedroom cottage and you rent it out to people, like something may go haywire here. The people who I do feel for though, are those people who live in condo buildings and people have snatched up condos in their building to use them as Airbnb party houses. To me, those neighbors, my heart sincerely aches for you, but the hosts Get out of here, you capitalists. Eliza, what do you think? Yeah, the host completely, it was their choice. They decided to do this. You also decide who can rent your property. Like, if the person seems trustworthy and they don't end up being trustworthy, like, that, it sucks. But it's what you signed up for as an Airbnb host. But, yeah, as as a neighbor with some uh, partying neighbors. <laughs> oh, it's <laughs> not great. I'm also a condo great. dweller. It's not great. It's not it's great not when someone throws great. a shindig. I'm not no. happy about it. I'll tell you, I, I booked a, a, a really nice cottage for a bachelor party in 2017 for a dear, dear friend of mine. And I sent the kindest message to the host as I was booking it. I'm like, listen, we're in our 30s. We're young professionals. We are going to drink a little bit, but I promise we're not going to leave your place in like disrepair. <laughs> so we tried to be like kind of as upfront and transparent about it, but it's like one of us is a lawyer and like one of us is a cop and one of us is a TV show host. I swear we're not going to break your stuff. We all carry great shame if we misbehave. And uh, we had a heck of a party and that owner was great. Outside uh, 24-7 Hot Tub Grotto, oh. which is something that I now want in my life when I'm rich and successful. Alex, how much sympathy do you have for the host who gets their house trashed. Yeah, I, as I said before, I, I think if it's one of those situations where it's like the 200, 300 people are showing up at your place, okay, I feel sympathy for you because, you know, you, even if you're like, oh, you're booking something, you're not anticipating that many people coming. But if it's just like, you know, there's 20 people in your, your small condo building and, and you're renting it out on New Year's Eve, and yeah, I, I, I don't really feel all that much uh, sympathy for you. I agree. It's it's the neighbors it's that really deal with the brunt of it. And there are stories of like a certain towers in Toronto where I think it was like over half of them were all Airbnb units and and a couple like live-in uh, owners were there and they were dealing with parties and, and loud noise and, and like cops being called almost like every single night or every single weekend, which is just so unfortunate. So hopefully, you know, this starts to give a change a way that it's not just here's a way to have parties or an easy way to go host a party at someone else's place and trash it like maybe this can lead to a bit more responsible booking and, and renting my neighbors never have to worry about me because i have no friends i'm deeply unpopular there are no parties to be had alex eliza thank you both for your thoughts on this topic i do want to remind you that even though rummy is not here today kelly and company continues to hit the airwaves at 2 p.m eastern time on ami audio one more day at least. Today, John Beeler stops by and talks about something that people have been chatting about all week. It's a new chatbot programmed by OpenAI, an artificial intelligence chatbot. John Beeler has the scoop on that one. 2 p.m. Eastern Time, Kelly and Company, featuring our boy, Brock Richardson, keeping him busy on AMI this week. Coming up next... We wrap up the show for 2022, but we also say our goodbyes to Studio 5 with a very special guest, one of the people who was influential in its creation and curation and what it's been for the last seven years in the AMI-audio family. So stay tuned. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. As I've said almost incessantly today, we are about to go on a hiatus for the show on Now with Dave Brown as we open up a new control room and a new studio. The show has not been canceled, but we do need a couple weeks to do some testing to make sure we can chase the gremlins out of our system in Studio 7 down the hallway. So we'll be back on January the 9th at 9 a.m. Eastern Time in our new studio and our new control room and hopefully a few cool bells and whistles along the way. But part of that involves us saying goodbye to where we sit right now, which is Studio 5, a place that has been filled with a lot of love and a lot of fun and a lot of interesting broadcasting for almost seven years now. And it all started with a kernel of an idea that blossomed with the help of Andy Frank. Andy is the manager of AMI-audio. He's a very familiar face and voice to this program, and he's been a very influential person in my career And Andy, you join us now as we say our goodbyes to Studio 5. I'm curious, what are you feeling this morning? Even though it's just an artificial space, it's a little bit more than that. Well, obviously I'm feeling nostalgia. Seven years is a a long time, and um, it was a bit of an experiment. You know, um, AMI Audio at the time was just doing reading and a couple of documentaries and uh, a couple of other programs that were really good, actually. Uh, Programs like Mosaic City and a, a few others like that. Uh, but going live was a big risk, and uh, so we had to start somewhere, and the studio was created, and um, I was hired to make it happen. That was my first job here, and so uh, so I'm obviously uh, nostalgic about seeing it go, but I, I am so excited because Studio 7 down the hall here is beautiful, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you are going to look magnificent in Studio 7, Dave. Not that you don't look <laughs> magnificent against these beautiful yellow tiles every day. <laughs> But Studio 7 is going to make you shine. So, uh, so yeah, there's been a, an awful lot of content generated from here, whether it was the live from Studio 5, which then became your show, uh, or Kelly and Company, which uh, began uh, in October of 2016, and a whole bunch of other reading shows and other, uh, and other crazy experiments as well. Yeah. So, you know. Including a food podcast that you never greenlit, but that's okay. We're I, not and, gonna, never will. and never and will. Never we're not, not going to hold will. that against you. Andy, it's been different iterations though, right? This started as strictly an audio studio and then got Frankenstein into a TV studio, which is no small feat. And you and your colleagues, through the help of a lot of incredibly talented people, our IT department, of even people, producers on the show like Daniel and Andrika and Bruce McLarian. And listen, I'm not going to get into names because if I start getting into names, we're going to forget people. We're not going to be able to include everybody that we should in the conversation. But there have been multiple iterations and evolutions in this space, which have been amazing. But it's always been kind of Frankenstein. We've got red wires running behind you right now from a hardwired camera that couldn't be used with the proper digital camera. And one table was over here and there's a HEPA filter over there. We didn't have air conditioning in here for seven months that got turned back on today, just in time for my last day. But it's like a bit of a love-hate relationship with this space, isn't it? Air conditioning turned on just in time for Christmas. It's like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I mean, it was what it was. It was a radio studio. And even as a radio studio, it was kind of, uh, you know, uh, improvised to, to, to some extent. And as a TV studio, yeah, forget about it. We we uh, there's a there's no proper room for lights. There's no proper room for a whole bunch of other things. Um, so yeah, credit to everybody who got this show on TV and kept it on TV all this time, and especially right around the pandemic, Dave. I mean, the things that went on over those two plus years 
uh, just to keep this show on the air on TV was incredible on everybody's part. And uh, a huge amount of progress was made, a lot of learning, which now will be taken into the future about how to manage those kinds of scenarios and, you know, should they happen again, which we, we oh, hope they don't. No, please we don't no. talk, you know, lockdowns or whatever, all those kinds of things. Um, so, yeah, it was a challenge and a great amount of credit is due to all the people who put a tremendous amount of work technically, creatively, etc. Andy, you fostered this show in its inception because it was so heavily built on the work you did constructing live from Studio 5 as the senior producer and eventually the manager of AMI-audio and we were able to jump out of the nest that you built so well for this show to be what it is. But I'm curious, as Kelly and Ramya are making their way over to TV, I'm curious what it's like to watch them grow. Well, I have enormous pride there too, even though I, I had less to do with with them than I did with this show because this was the show that I had to create from nothing. Whereas uh, the Kelly Ramya show was already now based on what was going on on the morning show that mm -hmm, we created. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were... Uh, ready to roll pretty independently almost from the get-go, but I'm extremely proud of what they've done. I think that show is going to be incredibly successful on AMI-TV, um, and I think, the, you know, Kelly's a long-established figure in the community for many, many years, pre you know, predating all of this stuff, uh, but people are going to fall in love with Ramya with him on TV. She's fantastic, with incredible talent, and they have amazingly uh, gifted contributors all across the country, mm -hmm. just like you do. Mm -hmm. um, and they tell the story, tell stories in a very different and unique way, and it's going to be uh, great entertainment. It's exciting times. And uh, Andy, I appreciate you stopping by right now to do a little bit of navel-gazing with me. I know some folks might say, ah, they're just hashing out their business stuff. Nobody cares. There, there are people who cares. And we definitely appreciate the way that you've cared about this show and this studio for all these years now. So as I've been saying to a lot of people today, publicly wishing them a happy holidays, all the best. You and I are still going to be spending quite a bit of time together off the air, <laughs> yeah. but I want to make sure the world knows that I wished Andy Frank a happy holidays. Well, thank you very much, David. The same to you. And thank you to all the listeners and viewers uh, over all this time for having supported our, our first incarnation, and we look forward to taking you over into the second one. Mm -hmm. And I do want to express a lot more gratitude as well. Again, as I remind you that we are going to be away for about a month here, January the 9th. 9 a.m. Eastern Time, Now with Dave Brown, will be coming back to you from our Studio 7 down the hallway in our new control room, which we're going to be testing out. But even before we get there, there are a ton of people who deserve thanks for the work they do around here. A special thanks this week goes out to Jeff Ryman and Grace Scofield, who filled into the audio control room. We've also had Eliza Rocco, who stepped up in a huge way the last couple months in the audio control room while still doing tests in the new control room. I think Eliza gets here before me in the morning and leaves after I do most days, which is uh, pretty impressive. There's also a lot of folks like Andy Frank and Sam Robinson and Mike Ross who've been all over the show this year doing incredible work. And then, of course, there's just the crew. Alex Smythe, who's been a recent addition. Brock Richardson, who's been a recent addition. This would the show would not get to air without Andrika Delanerol's organizational skills every day. One of the great evolutioners of the show has been Bruce McLarian, who is off on his own little hiatus for a couple weeks. We hope everybody is happy and healthy. 
Paul Daniel and Marianne Dion Jones do a ton of the behind the scenes work from production point of view. We also have Daniel Penamondo, who's been working in our video control room, our audio control room this week. He's also been working behind the scenes in that new control room as well, working his tail off. Got to give love to Kingsley Juco, who's working down the hall, who started working with us a couple months ago and has been filling in some of the gaps. We've been doing some of the testing and training in that new control room. And of course, our tech services team, Leanne Brown, Ray, oh my gosh, Leanne Brown and Ray, we make their lives miserable every morning with our complaints, and they always step up for us. The rest of the tech services team, like Kevin, oh, fantastic stuff. Andy Frank, who I've already thanked, but I'll thank yet again. Paula Deneen, Karen Nye, John Melville. If I keep going, I'm going to forget people. So I'm going to stop it right there and just say I'll see you in 2023. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.